how is everybody today? Very good, very good. It was a cold morning coming down. Got a little bit of snow. Anybody get some snow at the house? Yeah, still made it out though, right? Everybody, everybody's safe, everybody's good. We didn't get as much as what I know some people around here did, um, but it was still nice to be able to see. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. I know some of you may be sitting here looking, going, this is not Scott. Uh, no, I am not Scott. Um, I apologize if that's what you were expecting this morning. My name is Orlando. Uh, I uh, have served in various ministries here currently. Uh, I work with our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, and I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to come in and uh, speak on God's Word, to share God's Word. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. This is probably the most nervous I have been in a long time about sharing God's Word, and I'm not 100% sure why. The, the, the material today is actually quite meaty. Uh, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Um, but I believe the implications uh, are eternal. And so I want to make sure that we all understand where I'm going to be coming from once I read these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, and this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, and this is the part I want us to focus on here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And of course, it continues on talking about who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. For the last probably six months or so, every time I've been asked to speak here at church, God has impressed upon me this particular message, but I've never had the peace uh, in knowing that that was the right moment. As many a times I would begin preparing this message, and God throughout the time I was preparing would say, not that one yet, please hold off and let's do another one. So over the last, again, six months, eight months or so, every time I've got up here to speak, it has been on a topic that I wasn't expecting God would say to me at that point because I wanted to speak about this. I knew that God wanted me to speak about this, but yet there was no peace about it. Well, today is that day God has given me peace about it, but yet my body is physically not at peace. I am so nervous about what I'm getting ready to discuss. The question I want to ask, we, we have just gone through a song and worship service where we sung praises to God. And where's the young lady, Adriana, that was up here speaking, I believe it was Adriana or Adrian, who was up here with CO this morning. Uh, she talked about um, having the faith and, and the evidence in knowing that she can stand boldly to share the gospel with people. And then why was she so concerned about being able to do that? And I think many of us are. We've come to church, we've heard the Bible being preached, we've, we've believed in Jesus Christ, but why? 
And that's the question I want to answer is, can we trust the story of Jesus? Paul gives us a great synopsis here of the story of Jesus beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared, He began appearing to multiple people. After his resurrection, foundational to the Christian faith is Jesus Christ and what we are told about his life, death, burial, and resurrection. If we cannot provide evidence that this assertions that are, these assertions that are being made in the Bible are true, then our arguments fall apart, our faith falls apart, we have nothing to stand on. Believers should be able to answer the question, how can the events of Jesus' time on earth be trusted? If we have somebody come up to us, and this is happening already, (coughs) excuse me. If we have somebody come up to us and say, why should I trust what the Bible says? We should be able to defend what the Bible says, not with hope, though there is a lot of hope. Not with tales or misunderstanding, but with facts. How do I explain Jesus' life, death, and burial, death, burial, and resurrection to others? As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we should always, as believers, be prepared to give a defense for why we believe. We say if we can't defend that to somebody who is an unbeliever, then they have nothing to stand on and to begin looking forward to that faith themselves. Additionally, we need to understand the truth to be able to strengthen our own faith, which allows us to draw even closer to our Lord and Savior. When we can have concrete evidence and make a judgment and a determination that what has been presented to us is factual, is factual, our faith in the Lord becomes that much stronger and is that much more difficult to shake when hard times come. Now, for the person who is here today who may not believe, you've happened to walk into our doors and you're seeking, you're looking, you're trying to understand what it is that the church believes, you need to know what the evidence shows. You need to be able to justify, not with opinions and tales, but with factual evidence, what you're hearing and why you are being led to believe what you believe you are being led to believe. And especially in this person that we call Lord, Jesus Christ. John eight thirty one speaks to the unbeliever. Says, so Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In order for us to begin to understand who Jesus is and to trust who he is, we have to first understand his word. And we're going to talk about whether his word is trustworthy here in just a moment. In Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And it continues on from there. There is knowledge and wisdom to be found in believing in Jesus Christ. Not just hope and fairy tales. And it's my hope today that as we prepare to leave here, you have a strong understanding of why you have that hope, that future hope that we sang of Jesus returning, that you can stand solidly on that foundation, and that you can defend it to others if they ask why. Now, a lot of this is going to sound, uh, as I began preparing this message, a lot of this is going to sound kind of academic in nature. I, I Trust me, this is not an academic uh, message. I'm going to go against many academic norms as I go through here, academic conventions. I have uh, studied the Bible and actually have looked at the material that I'm going to be presenting as I worked on my Master Divinity. I've written... I don't know, 200, 250 pages uh, on textual reliability, um, internal sources, external sources, etc. that look at defending the Bible and what it means. By no means am I an expert on this. It's just my own academic research as I was going through my studies. In preparation for that, I learned uh, Greek and Hebrew, uh, so that way I could read uh, the original manuscripts and... Uh, come to those determinations myself. Of course, those are primary sources. In my research, I use secondary sources as well. Today, I am going to be using popular sources. And this is where we're going to break academic conventions because the popular sources do a great job of breaking down academic research and presenting their findings, of course, their surveys and their studies uh, in a way that makes it easy for somebody like me to read. Sometimes academic papers can just be boring. Uh, It's like eating a dry cracker. Um, it just, it can be very boring. So the sources that I'm going to present to you today, I'm hoping that will be a jumping point, a starting point for you uh, to be able to dig in and dive even more. We are not, we're just going to scratch the surface today of evidence about how we can trust the story of Jesus Christ. So as I stated, as I prepared for this message, I looked at different source material, including biblical and extra biblical text as well as the analysis of writings by four individuals. The first individual that I looked at was C.S. Lewis, uh, and I went to the C.S. Lewis Institute and pulled many of his writings that have been condensed down into short articles, etc. C.S. Lewis, if you're not sure who he is, he was an apologist that lived from 1898 to 1963. You probably know some of his works better, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, screw tape letters. I know that that was a book that we were reading here recently, but C.S. Lewis is a fantastic writer and apologist. From the C.S. Lewis Institute, it says, C.S. Lewis argued that if the gospel is true, if Jesus was the son of God come in the flesh, if he lived a perfect life and performed miracles, died for our sins, was physically raised from the dead, ascended to heaven and reigns at present as the living Lord, it is of infinite importance. And it really is. If those events happened, it is of infinite importance. And I would say eternal importance. If it is not true, it is of no importance except as a cultural phenomenon. If what is written in the Bible did not happen and is not true, we are here because of a cultural fad, not because of something that is true that has happened and events that will happen. 
but it cannot be of moderate importance, they say. This is either true and of extreme importance, or it is not true and of no importance. There is no middle ground. Paul Johnson, they quote, says, Christianity is essentially a historical religion. It bases its claims on on the historical facts it asserts. If these are demolished, it is nothing. If the truth of Jesus Christ as presented in the Bible cannot be supported, if there is any evidence to support that what happened did not happen, then Christianity is over. We don't have to come back next Sunday. We have nothing to worry about. So historical evidence is important for establishing the truth of the Gospels as well as the rest of the Scripture. Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell, authors of More Than a Carpenter. This is a nice little read here if you have never read this before. I think we may even have a few copies out there. I didn't check on the um, library bookshelves this morning, but um, More Than a Carpenter. In the beginning of this, Josh writes, So I turned to one of the students as he's telling his story, and I asked, tell me, why are you so different from all the other students and faculty on this campus? What changed your life? He was on a campus and started noticing that there was a group of people who were different. And so he began to interview them, and this was the question, what changed your life? Without hesitation or embarrassment, this one student looked straight at him in the eye, deadly serious, and uttered two words he never expected to hear in an intelligent discussion on a university campus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I snapped. Oh, for God's sake, don't give me that kind of garbage. I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. That is an argument, something that we hear quite often today. People who, they, who say that they are fed up with the church and fed up with religion. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ is no religion. He is the Savior. Belief in Jesus Christ is not a religion. It is faith. In the preface of the book, McDowell goes on to state that he wrote more than a carpenter, hoping that it would help followers of Jesus to respond to questions about their faith and inspire spiritual seekers to honestly investigate the claims of Jesus. He says, I never dreamed that the story of my personal journey from skepticism to belief. So here's a man who went into this looking to disprove the facts in the Bible, but instead of disproving the facts in the Bible, proved them to himself. His journey from skepticism to belief would inspire readers around the world to take a closer, deeper look at the possibility of faith. When those people who are most skeptical begin to look at the facts and evidence of the Bible, in many cases they come out and say, I can now truly and honestly believe The next author that I'm going to present has done that as well, and that is Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ. Strobel states, For much of my life I was a skeptic. In fact, I considered myself an atheist. So if you have an atheist friend out there that is looking for evidence, Lee Strobel is a great place to start. He was a journalist who set out to prove that the events in the Bible could not have happened um, and uses a ton of evidence. We're going to talk about some of that here in just a little bit. To me, there was too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking, ancient mythology, or of primitive superstition. How could there be a loving God if he consigned people to hell for just not believing in him? And we know that that's not a true question. 
Um, we choose God or we don't choose God, and God cannot be in the presence of sin, so we choose hell. God does not consign us there. And it's not belief in God. It's faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross um, that allows us to be in the presence of God because we are covered by Jesus' um, righteousness, not our own. Or that lack of faith in Jesus Christ is what consigns us to hell, our own choices. It breaks God's heart when he has to tell somebody that they cannot stand in his presence. How could miracles contravene the basic laws of nature? Didn't evolution satisfactorily explain how life originated? Doesn't scientific reasoning dispel belief? In the supernatural. Later, Strobel says, ultimately, it is the responsibility of jurors to reach a verdict. That doesn't mean they have 100% certainty because we can't have proof about virtually anything in life. In a trial, jurors are asked to weigh the evidence and come to the best possible conclusion. In other words, which scenario fits the facts most snugly? Ladies and gentlemen, you're now jurors. And my hope this morning is that the facts as presented, will lead you to believe and understand that the, what is presented in the Bible about Jesus Christ can be 100% believed as factual, reliable, and that your faith and understanding of who Jesus is can be strengthened. So let's move on to that first question. Can the presentation of Jesus in the Bible be trusted? C.S. Lewis Institute states, A case for the authority of Bible begins with historical evidence and convincingly ends with the total trustworthiness of Scripture. It goes something like this. In premise A, the Bible is at least a generally reliable document. Now, as a Christian, I do not like that word, generally, a generally reliable document. It poses doubt, Right? But it is very difficult when you look at the historical evidence and all the manuscripts that we have, copies, fragments, etc., to be able to look and see that there are not conflicts between one copy of a manuscript and another. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the documentation we have, there are over 300,000 differences in the copies, the manuscripts that we have, and the fragments we have of the Bible uh, that somebody could potentially sit there and say, game over, it's done. There's too many conflicts. Well, I can tell you, I have looked at many of those conflicts myself. And what we are talking about in the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, is a difference of spelling of a word. Maybe they've left a letter out. Uh, A difference in, uh, or misspelling a word. Uh, A difference in using things like articles. Uh, For instance, you, you hear about Jesus and his disciples entered a boat crossing Galilee, one copy of the manuscript may see, say Jesus and his disciples entered the boat. Does it really change the context of what is happening here? No, but that is one of the discrepancies that could be argued against, and there are over 300,000 of those types of discrepancies. When you look at all the manuscripts we have in total as a whole, there is actually 98% agreement between all of those manuscripts. And for such an ancient document... That is a very, very high level of reliability that we can look at between these documents. An extremely high level. The next closest documents that we have, for those of you who remember high school English class, is Homer's Iliad. Everybody remember reading that in high school? We have about 1,900 copies of Homer's Iliad 
and fragments of Homer's Iliad versus about 25,000 copies and fragment pieces, I'm including both together, of the New Testament. So an extreme disparity between the volume that we have, even though Homer's Iliad is uh, a few years old, a few hundred years older. Homer's Iliad, when we look at it, nobody contests that what Homer wrote in the Iliad is what he intended to write. As a matter of fact, we republish that in English today very much like we do the New Testament. But nobody contests that what the base story is, is something different. However, we have more agreement with the New Testament and 25,000 documents or manuscripts, copies that we have, than there is in Homer's Iliad. Nobody wants to talk about that. Instead, they want to focus on the New Testament and the slight disagreement, 2%, that there is there, even though the New Testament is much more agreeable than Homer's Iliad. That's the first place we have to start. Is the Bible reliable? You can establish this as you would for any other historical document, just like we talked about with the Iliad, by looking at the bibliographical text, textual reliability, the internal test, what it claims about its sources, and the external test, outsider verification, article, archaeological evidence, etc. On those three topics, topics alone, I have about 100 pages of academic research that I have done myself to, that shows that the Bible is reliable. The Bible is a reliable document. As a matter of fact, I went into one paper. I grew up independent Baptist and was taught as an independent Baptist that the only Bible I should read out of is the King James Version of the Bible. I went in to that particular paper and was going to my thesis was that the only Bible that God wanted us to read uh, as English-speaking believers was the King James Version of the Bible. And that was, I went into it with that premise. And I tell you what, I got slapped around a little bit. And I'm not trying to tell people what version of the Bible you should or should not read. But I'm going to tell you that based off of the evidence and the reliability from uh, one translation to the other, when you look at the original manuscripts, the King James Bible is not God's authorized version of the Bible. Now, again, I'm not telling anybody what to believe, but I'm telling you that when I did my research, I went in with one look expecting to find an answer to support a bias that I had because that's what I was taught growing up. And instead, God revealed to me something else, and I had to change the way that I was looking at my paper. That's what happens when you do academic research. You propose a thesis, you go begin looking at source documents, you come out of it either with a conclusion that supports your thesis or that you have to continue doing more research and looking at things. That research showed me that the documents, the original manuscripts of the Bible are reliable, even from English translation to English translation. I now typically read out of the ESV. Um, It is one of the most close Uh, closely related translations to the original manuscripts, and that's why I use the ESV. Um, If you're interested in reading more about those tests, uh, I can give you some places to start with those. Um, But that's, we have to start that the Bible is at least a generally reliable document. Premise B, once we understand that the Bible is at least a generally reliable document, then we can begin looking at Jesus. And the C.S. Lewis Institute asserts that Jesus is at least a messenger of God. Assuming that the Bible is at least generally reliable, you could then look at various lines of evidence pointing to Jesus as someone sent from God to speak truth to us. He is certainly more than that. I think we would all agree. He is certainly more than that. But you have to start with some foundation. But that's where we need to 
all we need to establish at this point. You could use such evidence from prophecy. There are 332 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that Jesus has met or will meet with his second coming. Miracles and particularly his resurrection. And again, there are many, many books written about this topic. One book that the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, recommends you read is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And then premise C, if Jesus is a messenger sent from God, the Bible is generally reliable, then Jesus teaches that the Bible is totally trustworthy. So if the Bible is reliable, Jesus has been sent from God, and Jesus is teaching that the Bible is totally trustworthy, we can conclude that the Bible is totally trustworthy. Again, assuming general reliability, you can show that Jesus teaches that the Bible is more than generally reliable. In fact, totally trustworthy or absolutely authoritative is what Jesus' words say. So we've gone from this concept that the Bible is generally reliable, that Jesus was sent here as a messenger from God, but that Jesus' words themselves, if they are generally reliable, teach that the Bible is authoritative and totally reliable. So we've come full circle to see this. In about 200 passages in the gospel, Jesus teaches either explicitly or implicitly a very high view of the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. There are also numerous passages in which Jesus affirms the apostles' authority and promises to send the Spirit to teach them everything they need to know for the future. So even though Jesus did not write the New Testament, his apostles did, his 12 disciples that followed him minus Judas uh, from the time of his death, as they begin writing, Jesus is put, put, putting authority into them, saying that they have this authority and that the Holy Spirit is going to come and teach them the things that they need to be able to do to spread his gospel message. So therefore, Jesus is saying that what these men write is also authoritative and totally reliable. C.S. Lewis Institute concludes that the Bible is totally trustworthy. The conclusion is as strong as the evidence mustered in the above premises. The C.S. Institute goes on to argue that the reliability of the Gospels and looks at a charge, and I'm just going to look at one charge right now, that Jesus was a figure invented by the early church. The Institute argues, number one, that inventing the character of Jesus would involve a miracle. I want us to think about what we know about Jesus and how this character of Jesus, there's this thread all the way through the, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and his person as we know that he lived, that in order for Jesus to be created would be a miracle in and of itself. There are several quotations from non-believing authors that make the point it would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. For instance, Theodore Parker states it would take a Newton to forge a Newton. What man could have fabricated a Jesus? No one but a Jesus. So we're making the argument here, and even these non-believers are making an argument here, that Jesus, as presented in the Bible, had to be a real person, could not be a fabrication. Rousseau states the gospel has marks of truth so great and so striking, so perfect, perfectly inimitable. Mm-hmm. I'm getting tongue-tied this, mor- this morning. Inimitable. Can somebody help me? Inimitable. Uh, it's not coming out. You guys, I'll have to... I-N-I-M-I-T-A-B-L-E. Say that in your head. Okay? We're all there. I had no problem with this when I was going through this last night and this morning. 
that the inventor would be more astonishing than the hero. So the characteristics of Jesus and who Jesus is as presented in the Bible, if somebody were to have invented a character so strong as the character of Jesus, as the person who invented that character would be more noteworthy than Jesus himself. That is the argument by a non-believer. John Stuart Mill says it is of no use to say that Christ, as exhibited in the Gospels, is not historical and that we, do, that we know how much... Excuse me, that we know not how much of what is admirable has been superadded by the tradition of his followers, who among his disciples or among their proselytes was capable of inventing the life and character revealed in the Gospels. There is no way that the character of Jesus Christ and who he is as presented in the Gospels could have been maintained constant from one person to the next if it was a made up person. We have multiple authors spanning about 1,600 years to say this is who the Christ is supposed to look like. The Messiah, this is what he's supposed to look like. And then once he arrived on the scene, Jesus Christ arrived on the scene, this is what he did look like, according to eyewitnesses. Two, talking about eyewitnesses. When the Gospels were written, there were eyewitnesses still alive who, have corrected, who could have corrected any mistakes by saying that didn't happen or it didn't happen that way. The apostles were key eyewitnesses who had intimate acquaintance with what Jesus said and did. They were there with him on a daily basis. So therefore, if one of them were to say something and write it that were not true, the others would have been able to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not exactly the way it happened. Instead of seeing that, what we see are the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament actually confirm and use each other's writings to show the character of Jesus was consistent. And here's what he did and said over the life of his ministry. The apostles were very much alive, many of them having written the very books we study from their eyewitness points of view. And yet we see no contradictions. We see no contradictions. According to tradition, on number three, all of the apostles except for John were killed as martyrs. Now, we know many people who have been willing to die for something they believed in that we later found out or knew was a lie. But they, those individuals who died for that belief believed that what they were dying for was the truth. There has never been an instance in history where somebody fabricated a truth, presented it as a truth, and was willing to die for what they knew to be the lie that they fabricated. Yet all of the men, all of, all of uh, Jesus' disciples, except for John, died a martyr's death. Very gruesome, many of them. Being crucified, crucified upside down, etc. Stoned to death. There is no recorded history where people fabricated a lie, especially a lie so grand as Jesus Christ, and were willing to die for that lie in such a gruesome way. It's one of the reasons why torture works so well with our military. And let's be honest. If somebody's lying, you can torture them and find out. That's what was happening here with these individuals. They were being tortured to find out the truth, and yet they gave up their last breath, still believing in Jesus Christ. 
Number four, the time for creation of a mythical, any mythical material was too short. Jesus died at about A.D. 30. The Gospel of Mark was written in the 60s, if not in the 50s. There may be some discrepancies about that. Paul received his tradition about Jesus Christ and what Jesus had done, as we spoke about in 1 Corinthians 15 in the mid-30s. So just a few years after Jesus had died and wrote some of his epistles in the early 50s. So we're talking about a span of just a few years, a couple of decades, not hundreds of years or generations passing. This timetable does not allow for the creation of sagas, legends, and myth. For example, the development of German folklores required centuries. Yet the message of the gospel exploded into life as soon as it was born. There's no time for a mythical Jesus to have been created and the facts about his life to have been created, corroborated, as these men spread across the world and their writings were eventually found and canonized into what we know as the New Testament. There was no opportunity for that. The other thing that we have to take a look at is the failure to take into the account of the Jewish perspective on memory. Some critics that want to argue against the writings of the Bible imagine that there is a free-flowing situation with the authors are able to write whatever they would like. That they were allowed and even encouraged the easy invention of stories about Jesus. However, such a picture is totally contrary to Middle Eastern and Jewish environment out of which these stories come. For instance, even today we can see that the good Jewish student was not to lose a drop from the cistern of the master's teaching, they go on to say. Right up to this day, the best Jewish student is the one who can recite the rabbinic tradition verbatim on issue after issue. No one was encouraged to play fast and loose with the formal tradition. You were not allowed creative freedom. You were expected to recite word for word. You would immediately be corrected if a single word was wrong. That is the ancient Jewish tradition, the Middle Eastern tradition, etc. We see an example of that today, how it doesn't work very well for us in the U.S., when our kids play telephone. You know, you, you start a little thing and you whisper into the person's ear next to you some phrase or sentence. And then they whisper what they hear to the person next to them and on and on and on until it gets to the end of the line of kids who are there. And I know when I've done this with my students, what comes out at the end is like, where in the world did that even come from? I said, I like Oreo cookies at the beginning of this. And you're talking about giraffes and lions. What in the world is happening here? Researchers took that game to the Middle East and had Middle Eastern students, including Jewish students and Muslims, play that game. What was said at the beginning to the first student was the exact same thing that was presented at the last student down the chain. They did this over and over and over, and the kids could not figure out why they were playing this game. They didn't understand the importance behind it, because Middle Eastern students are taught the importance of listening and uh, reciting exactly what you hear. There's no comprehension that it could be different at the end. They understand the importance of repeating things. In addition... To that, if we had seen this, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the character of Jesus would be different from author to author. So what would have been repeated, we would see in these writings, would be different from author to author. The sixth thing that they look at is the utter uniqueness of Jesus' teachings. Some critics accept... Guys, I am way over here. I am so sorry. Is that clock right? It is. I'm going to hurry here. 
Some critics accept as authentic only those sayings of Jesus that are unique and not paralleled in contemporary Judaism. For instance, Jesus often referred to God as Father or even Abba, titled like Daddy. Nowhere else has that been used in Jewish tradition. Jesus also used Amen or Amen, Amen, which means I'm speaking the truth to you. The utter uniqueness of Jesus' parables, and I'm going to start going through this very quickly so I can end here. His parables taught that, uh, excuse me, there are stories and metaphors similar in rabbinic teaching, but there is no parallel to Jesus' parables. Stories about everyday life used to teach theological points during the intertestinal period or immediately afterward. Yet there are some 41 parables in the Gospels that Jesus used as a weapon to confront spirituality or to assure his, his followers that what they were believing was true. What about archaeology? First, archaeology cannot prove someone said something or was at a specific place unless there was a tangible recording of that event, such as a writing, or we know that Pontius Pilate lived because we have found coins with his inscription on him. Lee Strobel asked famed archaeologist Dr. John McRae this question, does archaeology affirm or undermine the New Testament when it checks out the details on this account? And I want to say this, McRae's answer was, oh, there is no question that the credibility of the New Testament is enhanced, just as the credibility of any ancient document is enhanced when you excavate and find that the author was accurate in talking about a particular place or event. The more archaeology finds, the more it supports the events, places of the Bible. There's been nothing found that says that anything in the Bible is not true. So did Jesus really die? Lee Strobel writes that medical evidence is crucial to a case involving death. He says it can determine whether a child died of abuse or an accidental fall. It can establish whether a person succumbed to natural causes or was murdered. By someone who spiked the person's coffee with arsenic, it can uphold or dismantle the defendant's alibi by pinpointing the victim's time of death using an ingenious procedure that measures the amount of potassium in the eyes of the deceased. And yes, it can even determine if somebody who was brutally executed on a Roman cross two millennia ago that the medical evidence is a crucial contribution. Strobel goes on to look at all the facts surrounding Jesus' death. He argues that there's no way somebody could sweat blood as Jesus did when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, doctors have stated that there is. It is a condition called hematidrosis. He said it's not common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological distress. I believe Jesus was under a high degree of psychological distress before he was picked up by the Roman guards in the garden. What happens with this hematidrosis is that the blood vessels begin breaking under the skin. The skin becomes very fragile, knowing that Jesus went into flogging next. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but were frequently a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious to critical condition, even before the nails were driven through his hands and feet. When Roman soldiers put a person on the cross, the nails that they used were five to seven inches long. They went through the wrists. At this point, there's a nerve in here. If any of you have ever hit your funny bone, you know how painful that is. It's not funny. There's another one that goes through here that is markedly um, more painful. Uh, they actually had to create a new word 
um, for the pain called excruciating, mm -hmm. as they would put the nails through the wrists and the feet. It would crush the nerve, and the person would cry out in extreme pain, and of course would lose the ability to, to use the extremities after that. Death on the cross is caused by asphyxiation due to not being able to breathe. The person hanging on the cross would be already bloodied and bru uh, bruised, They'd be hanging there with nails going through their wrists and their feet in order to catch a breath because they would be slumped over. They would have to push up against the nails in their feet, take a breath, and then would slump down again, pulling against the nails in their, in their hands. Eventually, the person would not be able to lift themselves up to catch a breath and would die from asphyxi asphyxi mm -hmm, asphyxiation. Due to the lack of oxygen, Jesus would have entered respiratory acidosis, which leads to an irregular heartbeat. That's how he knew he was getting ready to die when he said his last words and gave up his spirit. As he was in, and I'm on my last page, guys. As he was in respiratory acidosis, acidosis excuse me, confirmation, confirmation of his body shutting down would have been able to be seen as the Roman centurion thrust the spear through his lung and into his heart and the fluids the blood that accumulated in his lungs and the fluid around the pericardium of the heart came out. Jesus was dead. The conclusion on this section, Roman guards were expert in killing people. They weren't doctors, but they knew how to kill. To the point that if they were wrong and a prisoner escaped, the guards would be put to death. Jesus died on the cross. The last question I have to answer, and I promise you, I'm right here. I'm almost done. Was Jesus buried in the tomb? We go back to our original text in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of the importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. These verses summarize all four Gospels, and if you would like to know the accounts of those four Gospels, I can give you the verses of those. Additionally, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels, including Mark's, which is the earliest known account and would have been subject to criticism by those who knew otherwise. Joseph of Arimathea was also a part of the Sanhedrin, the group that voted to have Jesus crucified. We know that he was not a part of that vote by the Gospel of Luke, hence his secrecy in going to Pilate and asking for Jesus' body. How secure was the tomb? Archaeological evidence shows that the stone would have been large enough for multiple men to be needed to move the stone. The Roman guards were placed at the tomb to protect it and ensure no one took the body under the penalty of death themselves. When the eyewitnesses arrived at the tomb, what they found was a tomb void of the body of Jesus. The Roman guards wouldn't have uh, taken it. And nobody else would have been able to take it with the Roman guard there. The tomb was empty. And after that, there are multiple accounts of Jesus presenting himself to his disciples and to the multitudes of people who have been able to refute seeing Jesus alive after dying on the cross. Jesus resurrected. The idea of Jewish uh, resurrection to the Jewish people would have been um, that the body would have decayed. They collected the bones, put it in a sarcophagus, and put it further back into the tomb. Whole collections of family would have been, um, the bones would have been collected in one tomb. They knew that they saw Jesus alive. So what can we conclude? And I'm done here, folks. McDowell writes, you would think that after examining the evidence, I would have immediately jumped on board and become a Christian. But in spite of the abundant evidence, I felt a strong reluctance to make the plunge. 
My mind was convinced of the truth. I had to admit that Jesus Christ must be exactly who he claimed to be. I knew the truth, yet my will was simply pulling me in another direction. There were two reasons for my reluctance, pleasure and pride. When we see the evidence, it's not because we don't know that it's true. It's because we don't want to turn our lives over to God. And and song group, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. We don't want to turn our lives over to God. Rather, we want to hold on to the things that are pleasurable to us. And in the event that we think that we're wrong or we've put up a big show about I can't be be a part of religion, I can't go to church, etc., our pride gets in the way. Because how could I dare admit to the people that know me the most that I believe the facts about Jesus Christ? And there is the dilemma. There is the dilemma. We want our pleasure and our pride gets in the way. Ladies and gentlemen, today as you leave here, especially if you're an unbeliever, my prayer is that you will take your pride and your pleasure out of the picture. And then instead, you will look at the facts, the evidence presented for Jesus Christ, and that you will be able to see he was real. What the Bible says about him is reliable and trustworthy. That the events of his death are factual that he died on that cross, that he was buried, and that multitudes of people saw him alive, not limping and everything else, but saw him as a whole person walking around after his resurrection. And if we can't believe that evidence, I don't know what evidence we can. Father, I thank you so very much that you give us your book, your words, to be able to trust and rely on. Lord, you give us not just your words, but Lord, you also give us physical evidence to show that we can trust you. We can believe you. We can believe that Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins because everything points to the fact that it is trustworthy. Lord, it's not hope or superstition. Lord, it's factual. And I thank you, Lord, that I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior today, My prayer is that they'll examine the evidence. They'll examine their heart to see what is holding them back from making that decision. Is it pleasure or pride or arrogance or something else? Lord, that you will remove that and allow them to see fully and experience fully who your son is in all his glory. It's in his name I pray. Amen.